0: What actually did happen to Riggle? I mean, obviously I know he crashed, but I didn't question the details of his of his uh, injuries.
1: Yeah, he's he's uh, not broken anything, um, but he went down hard twice on the cobbles, and hurt his left elbow and left knee, and ultimately he just his left knee was too painful to continue. I mean, he he could hang on, but he couldn't couldn't really accelerate, couldn't keep in the race um, and it just I mean quite honestly it was understandable was be too painful to, to keep pushing along so um, so he pulled out
2: Arrange a time To pat this spot I realign To stay on top I've been away Time go by. Hello and welcome to the One More Mile podcast. Today is July 27th,
1: 2018,
2: and this is your host, Chris Arnish, flying solo for this part of the show. If you're not, Hanok will be back, but due to our conflicting travel schedules, uh, he couldn't make it to record this part of the show, but he did join me for our interview with. Team EF Drapak's physician, Dr. Kevin Sprouse. Kevin came to us from his podium sports medicine office in Knoxville, Tennessee. He had just returned from France and had a lot to offer on the medical care that goes into the Tour de France as well as pro cycling in general, so you're not going to want to miss that. However, before we get there, I want to remind everyone that this week's podcast is brought to you by the technically cool Rudy Project. Rudy Project has been making technically cool eyewear since 1985 and continue to deliver the best performance for both your eyes and your head, including their new ProTerra mountain bike helmet made to deliver protection for your melon and a lightweight, comfortable, and technically cool. Package. To learn more head on over to www.rudyproject.com and as a gift to our listeners Rudy is offering four vouchers for a choice of eyewear, helmets, team kit or kit bags worth at least $200 plus anything else you order on that voucher you'll get for 60% off. It's an awesome awesome deal. All you need to do is write us a review on iTunes and take a snapshot, send it to go one more mile, all one word, go one more mile at gmail.com, with the subject heading Rudy Rocks. That's go one more mile at gmail.com. All entries must be received by August twelfth, twenty eighteen, to be entered to win. Hey folks, as I indicated at the top of the show, Hennock couldn't make it back to talk about this week's race action at the tour, largely due to my vacation schedule. Now if you follow us on Twitter at Go One More Mile or Instagram at Go1mm, then you've seen that I'm currently in rural Canada, Prince Edward Island to be exact, where I've been taking in the sun, uh, the humidity, the awesome quiet dirt roads. But that same quiet means that I didn't have really good internet here. Uh, so while we didn't talk about the race action per se, you're, you're, you're going to notice that there's a bit of background wind in the recording, which really is on my end because I was recording outside the tourism center, which was the best place to get internet, but it wasn't necessarily the best case to record, so I apologize for that. Still, I think you're going to really enjoy the info that Dr. Sprouse has to offer, now, regarding the Tour de France, Henoch and I are probably going to circle back around and discuss the race outcome and really the possible implications for both the Vuelta a España next month and the future, which is no doubt going to fuel months of speculation about where Garrett Thomas is going to perhaps stay or land because we know Froome is locked up with Team Sky. But we'll come back to that later Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be discussing Pro Cycling Sports Medicine with Dr. Kevin Sprouse. Stick around. Arrange a time to this spot I to stay on top I've been away.
1: Time go by, I sense
2: to stay Welcome back to the One More Mile podcast. On today's show, we're discussing rider medical care and health with EF Draypax, Dr. Kevin Sprouse, who also runs Podium Sports Medicine in Knoxville, Tennessee. As I indicated, we had some recording difficulties, partly my fault, partly Canada's, because hey, why not blame Canada for one more thing? Seriously though, we missed a small portion of the intro here. So what I'm going to do is going to pick up with the interview right after that. And I really hope you enjoy it. Hey, Dr. Spross, thanks for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional background in the role that you play with the team?
1: Thanks for having me on. So my academic background, I, I studied exercise science in undergraduate. And uh, from there, Went on to medical school. Um, after medical school, I did a residency in emergency medicine, and then did a subspecialty fellowship in sports medicine. So, I kind of take a little bit from all those uh, components: the sports medicine, the sports science, and then the emergency medicine when I'm on the road with the team, especially, um, and kind of you know use all those things to help care for the team and in, in my. Various roles, I guess. Um, from more of a traditional team doc standpoint, um, you know, at a race, certainly there to care for the guys 24/7. So that may be middle of the night if one of them has a you know a stomach bug or something like that, um, or it may be the more you know commonly seen, you know, road rash, clavicle fractures, dealing with them you know on the road when when bad things happen. Um, and hopefully, I tell everybody. Hopefully, the race goes along such that I'm bored the whole time, um, <laughs> and then you know that means I get to be a tourist, and everybody else is having a good race, and, and everybody wins. But yeah, this tour didn't didn't really pan out that way. So you're still in France now, correct? I'm not. I just got wow. back. Um, okay, okay. So for the Grand Tours, we're we're halfway, a little over halfway through the Tour de France. For the Grand Tours, which is the Giro d'Italia or the Tour of Italy. Um, the Tour de France and the Vuelta a Espana, which is the Tour of Spain, those are such long events that we split those between two doctors. So I did the the days just before the race and then the first nine stages, and then another doctor came in and we traded off at the rest day, and he's doing the the remainder of the race.
0: Right, right. So you you got you got to
1: do all the uh, all the all the crashing stages. You got the busy part. That's right. <laughs> And I'm going to hope that that's all it is. I mean, right. it is still going. Hopefully we've got him out of our system.
0: Hopefully the second doctor has, has the easy tourist part of the job.
1: Yeah, so we had, I mean, you alluded to the fact that on stage one, it kind of started right out of the gate. Um, you know, Lawson, uh, who's one of the American guys on our team, had a, had a pretty bad crash, um, you know, uh, like you said, he fractured his scapula. Uh, actually, it was the spine of the scapula, um, which is is getting a little bit picky, but it's an important part of it when we kind of look at his injury and what he can safely do. Um, and then he also had a, a laceration above his left eye, kind of in the eyebrow, uh, that was pretty bloody, as those tend to be. And, you know, on camera, was quite dramatic uh that he had this you know blood kind of running down his face and dried on his face and um but really the, the real limiting injury um has been the shoulder and so you know we we had to deal with that straight out of the gate and then on stage nine cobbles um our our main guy our gc contender uh rigoberto uran crashed twice and uh, ended up having to eventually pull out of the race because of the pain from his his injuries
2: so, how do you guys decide, uh, you know, who stays in the race and who doesn't? Because I know this has come up in, in, you know, the media, and I, I've gotten asked this question about the safety of a rider staying in the race. What, what is kind of the protocol? Is it different for every single rider? Um, but, 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 what is the general protocol
1: when you guys are going into that? Um, I wouldn't say there's many things that are actually protocol. Um, you, we do have a head injury protocol, which is, uh, you know, basically to care for concussions or suspected concussions. Um, so that's the one thing that we assess very formulaically right up front. Um, and then it's a matter of really just evaluating the injury itself, um, and applying kind of common sports medicine practices the same way I would in my clinic or in the hospital. Um, And so, you know, with Lawson, uh, when I saw him, you know, I actually day one, I was not in the car. Um, Lots of days I'm in the car. There's some days I'm not. So I was at the finish line and I met him when he came across the line and we went to the the truck that houses the the x-ray and ultrasound machine. Um, and then has the, the medical staff in there as well, which is something that's, that the tour has, but not all races have. But, so we were able to go get an x-ray, um, get an ultrasound, take a look at, you know, the bone, the rotator cuff, the muscles, and really know what the injury is. And then we can step back and say, okay, well, what are the dangers of proceeding? Um, what do we have to look out for from a safe, safety standpoint and what is just painful? um not that there anybody needs to just push through the pain but that's that the initial distinction is you know is this dangerous or is it painful um and with this injury and the kind of the character of it we knew that it wasn't physically dangerous for him to continue he wasn't going to do any more damage um in fact he's you know continued to heal while racing um so then it's a matter of you know is it one does he want to is it too painful to push through. And if that's the case, we're not going to push him. I mean, we're not, nobody on our team's medical staff or administration is looking to, to force a guy to race when they don't want to. I mean, for one, it's not the right thing for the athlete and for the long term health. But secondly, you're not going to get anything out of them competitively at that point either. Um, you know, just, there's no good reason to push someone to risk, but if we can say that they're they're safe to race they're not going to do damage um, and they want to keep going, then I'm all for it you know we, we'll do everything we can to ensure that they can give it their best shot. Um, one of the worst things I think that I've seen a number of times is an athlete makes a quick decision to pull out of a out of an event whether it's a you know, multi-day, multi-day event like this or whatever, and then soon after they realize, oh, well, I'm actually feeling better than I thought I would, and I wish I could be back in there, but the call is made. So, um, you know, giving them that opportunity to kind of at least see how it unfolds, I think, is important.
0: Right. Uh, that, I have a question now because you, you, if you can touch touch a little more about the the long term. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, you're a doctor and you've seen his shoulder and everything. But is there like a a chance? I mean, obviously, he can deal with the pain. He's a tough guy. um, But is there a chance that there is, you know, down the road when he's, you know, 40 or or 60, that there will be some, some, you know, long-term negative health uh, repercussions to, uh, you know, his shoulder? And we hear a lot about, you know, old football injuries. You know, football players can barely walk. 10, 20 years from now, he might be suffering some kind of, you know, shoulder tendinitis, or I guess that's a really long-term question. And then in the more middle term, you know, as a professional cyclist, would it be better for him to, um, you know, perhaps go home, recover for a couple of weeks, you know, have really, really solid recovery, and, you know, maybe, you know, t- get, try to get a top down into Buelto or, 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 you know, some other, you know, race that the, that the team is and also, like, psychologically, like, grinding it out like that for three weeks, can that, like, grind him down and burn him out, you know, perhaps? Is yeah. that, do you guys do any psychological evaluations? I don't know if, you know, that's not your area of expertise. I'm curious about that. You know, Talansky had that famous crash a few years ago in the tour, and he kind of gutted it out, and he was really tough, and then... Then he retired from the sport when he was still really young, and I, I wonder if, if, you know, there was some cause and effect going on there.
1: Sure. I think those are all fair questions um, and ones that we kick around when making this decision. Um, you know, with with Andrew Tulansky, I, I was his doc there and continue to work with him now that he's a professional triathlete. Um, that crash in particular didn't, you know, didn't have anything, I I feel pretty comfortable saying it didn't have anything to do with uh, his decision to retire and kind of change careers. Um, But it's a, I understand where you're coming from, and I think that's a valid, you know, at least something to question. Um, In looking at Lawson's, uh, in Lawson's case, you know, to answer your first question about whether there's long-term damage, um, no, I don't think so. You know, this isn't a joint injury. If it was if it involved the the actual joint in the shoulder then yeah you start to worry if you know maybe there's some some injury in there that you're making worse by continuing um this is more more similar to what um I don't know like like a rib fracture um where you're not going to do any damage there's nothing to be done for it you can't cast it there's no procedure to be done um it's just going to be what it's going to be and it's going to heal up almost irrespective of what you do to it. Um, and so that being the case, you know, we can pretty comfortably, uh, make that call with regard to safety and then move on to, you know, whether it's you know worth pushing through. Um, and, and kind of the, the call for safety is mine, right? Um, you know, right, even right. if the athlete wants to continue, if if I think it's unsafe, done. He's, he's out. Um, but we, we reached that point where it's like, well, it's safe, so let's talk about if and why you want to continue. And so for Lawson, um, there's a few things at play, but most importantly, it's the Tour de France. There's, nobody wants to abandon the Tour de France and focus on the Vuelta. Um, I mean, it's just not it, – it just – it's not really in their mindset. You know, they're at the Super Bowl, so why, why pull out and hope that you can do well at a, you know, at a preseason game? Um, so for them, especially on stage one, and we say, okay, well, you know, the goal or the the best case scenario is maybe get you through through the first week, um, kind of hanging on the way he did. And then in weeks two and three, start to contribute, start to be able to be back in the mix, help the team out. Um, and he wanted to do that. And we thought, thought it was reasonable to think he could, you know, he was able to help in the time, the team time trial. Um, he had a good day the other day on out the Wes. Uh, So it's, you know, it's kind of playing out a little bit as expected other than the fact that, you know, Rigo's not there for him to help. Um, which is is unfortunate because I think as he comes around, he could be a, a good helper for Rigo. But that's that's sport. That's how it plays out. So I don't think, you know, I don't think there's good argument for him to look to pull out and look to the Vuelta. Uh, it just the tour was his goal this year. He really wanted to get back to it for a lot of reasons. Um, when you look at you know Nibali, um you know, it's we have had riders ride with spinal fractures in the past but there have been um spinous process fractures um and you know that's kind of falls in the same category nebel is reportedly a, a body of the vertebrae fracture which is not something you ride through i mean he doesn't have the choice of push through this or wait and do the vuelta um you know his, his decisions kind of made right um, and I don't remember. You mentioned somebody else. Oh, well, Richie Port, Port I Richie guess. Port. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, same thing with a clavicle fracture. Um, you know, there's there's the old story of Tyler Hamilton pushing through that, and you know, I I don't see how someone rides with a clavicle fracture. I don't I don't think it's necessarily a a safe thing to do. So those those are kind of different scenarios where it you know they're gonna pull out or, or be pulled out, and then you know they're Best scenario at that point is to focus on the Vuelta, um, but it's a different. That's uh, yeah, a different premise than what we're looking at with Lawson.
2: Right. Okay. Okay. I I think in Tyler's um, case too, th- there were actually two different crashes. Um, you know, because he had crashed in the Giro and before, and I think he actually fractured his shoulder blade in that crash. Um, but but in the case of the the clavicle, my understanding was that it was a fracture it wasn't displaced it wasn't um you know it wasn't protruding it wasn't in multiple pieces uh so yeah. again I think he got very lucky uh if if you actually break your your collarbone you're just not going to race with it and I I've been fortunate I haven't broken a collarbone but I I know so many riders that have and and yeah I mean I think if it's actually snapped in half you're not <laughs> racing with it um, well,
1: I'll say impossible. what's even more worrisome is I've known lots of people who said I've never broken a collarbone and soon thereafter. So you better knock on wood somewhere. Hey, but, I, <laughs> well, I'm going to throw this fate. out there.
2: I, um, I, I actually uh, dislocated my SC joint. Um, mm. and, and, and so, again, I can't speak to a clavicle break, but that was – that was excruciatingly painful. That's a nasty um, one. Yeah. yeah. And so, so I mean, I still got the bump to show for it, but, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're just as debilitated. I couldn't lift my arm for probably about eight weeks.
1: Yeah. And that one's dangerous. I mean, that's, depending on which way the clavicle goes, Right. Um, you know, those that go inward, which is a lot rarer, but that's, you know, that's a potentially life or limb threatening injury. That's, yep. that's a skip thing. Yeah.
2: Well, I guess along the lines of of the injury thing, uh, you know, and I've had a number of guests on in the past where I've talked about just the general rider health, uh, you know, and the stress and the strain of, of being a professional cyclist. And I remember back in the early 2000s, there was a pretty neat study that came out. It was from Germany. Uh, and they looked at one or two tour de france teams and what they saw is a dramatic decline in uh uh, spinal bone density over the course of the race what what in your experience is the general overall health of these riders from a, a you know a skeletal standpoint from a musculoskeletal standpoint those types of of things do we see big differences in bone density and and you know whatever else and 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 i'll just add one other thing to that i i think the public maybe gets a misconception because a lot of cyclists break bones um that that they do have a bone density problem but i i think when you're looking at a sport like this it's very easy to make those connections without the actual evidence um so so what in your experience do you see with their bone health
1: Yeah. I think for the most part, their bone health is pretty good. Um, you know, there's a lot of crashes where bones are not broken and those are high speed crashes with, you know, really no, uh, nothing to kind of shield them when they hit the ground. Um, so obviously you hear about the ones where, where stuff is broken, but you know, just watching the stage today, um, I saw Gilbert flip over a wall on a descent and and hop back up and on the bike. Um, and we saw Adam Yates go down in a descent and same thing, you know, hops back on and on those descents, they're moving. Um, so if you had clinically significant, uh, bone density issues, uh, I think you'd see more fractures than we do. Um, now that's very subjective. I, I get that. That's not scientific, but that's, that's my take on it. We don't test the guys routinely for bone density, um, We'll sometimes do DEXA scans for the purpose of uh, body composition measurement, and with that comes a, uh, a bone density study. And then we'll, we'll do bone density studies on guys who fracture maybe an inordinate number of bones. Um, but honestly, that's few and far between. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the studies that were done in the early 2000s on bone density um there there was a lot of other stuff going on in those tours um and a lot of other uh, medications being used and whatnot that also impact bone density um, in a negative way yeah and so you know i I kind of wonder if that may have played a role in the study um I've seen those studies too, and um if I remember correctly they at least one of them, or maybe a different study, rechecked bone density later in the year and it recovered. So it was a short-term, kind of a short-term drop. So, you know, that makes me wonder if there's something else going on or is it just a sign of the the metabolic demands and maybe not pertinent with regard to fracture risk? I I don't know. Um, It's, you know, we've seen that with a number There were a bunch of studies kind of looking at grand tours for different reasons in the late 90s and early 2000s, and I just take them all with a grain of salt at best. Even, I mean, even not from an academic standpoint, I think the the folks doing the studies were well intended and they were good, Um, you know, some were well-designed studies, it's just they had some variables that they didn't know about and couldn't account for. Right, right. Yeah, that's Um, a good point. uh, Go ahead. You know, I, I, do think, I do think for the most part um, in cycling nowadays with the focus on um, at least, I, I don't know, I, I can speak for our team. Um, you know, there's very much a focus on rider health, nutrition. Uh, we've got you know, a, a chef that travels with the team as most, if not all teams do at the Tour de France now. Um, so they're eating good food as opposed to, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, they were, you know, every hotel served white pasta and overcooked chicken. (laughs) Um, and you know, there's a big difference in if you're, if every morning breakfast is, you know, pasta and a croissant and every dinner is again, overcooked pasta and overcooked chicken versus the amazing food that they're served now. Like that can make a world of difference. Um, in bone health and overall health recovery, all kinds of stuff. And then, you know, we take a, a very preventive and proactive approach to their musculoskeletal health in that, you know, we we have them work with physios and personal trainers and we do preseason assessments and they have their own programs that they're on for injury uh, prevention and, and injury treatment when it crops up. Um, so it's kind of an... An ongoing part of the part of the regimen nowadays where, um, again, 20 years ago, it would have the, the, the common wisdom would be to tell a cyclist, don't touch a weight, don't do not do anything resistance because right. you're just going to get big from it and it doesn't help.
0: <laughs> you want to look like Kate Moss. Exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, and that, it, you know, I mean, that's a good point and it, again, without the, the good controlled research, I think you lose sight of this, and and we do see this in in a, a lot of health issues, uh, particularly how the the media portrays things. Um, it it certainly brings the question. I mean, riders are very different than than they were in the 1970s for sure. I uh, I think the 1980s you, you did start to see a little bit of a transition to what what is essentially the modern cyclist certainly the riders of the 1970s look stockier they're different um the climbers back then were skinny but it seems like all professional cyclists now I, i i i think are very cognizant of their weight even the sprinters are are really really skinny uh and and whether or not that has an impact on bone health we we just don't know but you know you made a really good point that there are a lot of other things that we are doing for rider health Uh, uh resistance training in particular what does that resistance training look like for your team what are they doing in the winter are they doing something in season or even during the tour de france what do they do
1: Yeah. It it varies by rider. I mean, kind of, you know, what we know now in medicine and sports science is it's got to be individualized. Um, and so there's not like a team program. Uh, what we do is in the off season, we'll have them undergo some sort of assessment. Um, and that may be with someone they already work with, uh, a physio or trainer. Uh, it may be somebody that the team brings in, uh, To help out, but they'll undergo some sort of assessment and we'll see what they need to work on. Um, And then in the off season, they'll have a regimen that may be a little more strength based or a little more, you know, heavier weight uh, um, with an underlying kind of movement program that they'll go through throughout the year. Um, Now, this is kind of what's prescribed. Whether they stick to it or not is certainly left. To them, and you'll see that, as with any group of athletes, um, some are very good about it, and some are fairly non-compliant, um, and that's fine. I mean, you can only give somebody, you know, the tools, and then and let them do with them what they will. But you know, I, I see many more of the riders, a higher percentage of the team now that will do. Your daily exercises in their room at a race, which may be, you know, just simple body weight, um, resistance band stuff, uh, which you may think of as you know, quote unquote, activation type exercises, um, some range of motion, mobility stuff, um, and that's something they carry out throughout the year. Uh, cycling is, it, it, it's, you know, you spend four to six hours with your pelvis kind of locked on the saddle and and your lower extremities moving in a single plane and you may stand a little or you may you know hop off the bike to take a pee or whatever but for the most part you're spending the vast majority of that time seated and pedaling in in a single plane movement and so we'll work with them you know on a lot of supportive uh supportive movement supportive strength you know, lateral movements, uh, a lot of stability stuff. Um, and none of it is that remarkable or earth-shattering. It's just a matter of saying, look, the, the reason that cyclists or really any endurance athlete experiences overuse injury is almost entirely due to a lack of training outside of that sport. And so if you just bring in some variation and bring in some – Uh, some the addition of some you know mechanical stability and even even just a neural input of doing something different then you bolster those patterns that you do every day and you end up with less uh kind of overuse or uh, you know i hate the term wear and tear but people kind of can visualize that you know if if you can if you can really support the movement pattern, it becomes one that you can do in in a way that's strong instead of being deleterious.
2: Interesting. I I actually discuss a lot of that in in my biomechanics course and trying to get students to understand that a little bit goes a long way. And and I think that what we've seen health and fitness wise now is is muscle activation uh, is really a key part of health. You don't necessarily need to lift really big heavy weights or, you know, lift to exhaustion. It's really just that, that, that repetitive activation to kind of keep things healthy.
1: Yeah. I think a big part of it is, is neurologic involvement, um, and just making sure that you're able to kind of recruit the muscles that you need, even if they're more stabilizers than, than active movers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm cur- uh, I have a question about stage nine, but I'm just a quick follow-up. I'm curious. Um, you know, a lot of cyclists, perhaps, perhaps not the younger ones, but are very tradition-bound. They, you know, they like to do things, you know, like whatever they used to do in the past. And a lot of not being a pro cyclist is just like not doing anything other than riding your bike. Are, are the you find that the cyclists are um, resistant to these to these types of cross cross training or strength training or whatever you want to call them? Or are they pretty uh, accepting of it?
1: No, I think they're pretty accepting. I mean, they're 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 aware that kind of cutting edge sports science dictates that this is not just something that maybe they should be doing, but if if they're gonna if they're gonna do well in sport, they they need to tick these boxes. Um, and so, you know, occasionally you'll find a guy that's a, a little more old school in their thinking, and that's fine you know it's you can't i'm not gonna you know try to convert everyone to to my way of of thinking or or you know or or berate them for doing something different but i think what you see now is the norm is guys recognize that um you know that strength training has a place in endurance sport that running in the off season has a place in cycling. I mean, that used to be so taboo, right? Right. That right. Cyclists just didn't run. They didn't walk. They didn't have to. Um, yeah. And now you see guys who during the off season are going trail running and doing all kinds of things, both to mix it up, but also just to kind of have, uh, to promote a, a different type of musculoskeletal health. Um, and so the, the tides really turn and there's, there's a lot of acceptance and some of that probably goes to, you know, younger riders coming up in a, just in a different environment. Right. Right. Um, awesome.
0: All right. So I wanted to have a, a question that's not really related directly to what we were talking about, but back to, to Lawson. Um, were there, were there any special precautions taken re- in regards to the cobble stage precautions? Um, you know, either with the way he rode, because obviously if he crashed again, it, it could probably be pretty bad. Or I don't know anything. Just or any any did he do anything different than the rest of the team? Just in preparation, the
1: morning of it, or, or I
0: don't know any any anything you can tell us about. Yeah, about
1: that. Uh, the short answer is no. Um, okay. I mean, now he was doing daily soft tissue and chiropractic treatment. Um, So, you know, he did that as he normally did, um, but that wasn't different for the cobble stage per se. Um, But no, I mean, we we didn't alter his bike setup uh, or his bike fit because that could just cause other problems. Um, We, you know, there's not a whole lot to do really to prepare him for the cobble stage in terms of the the kind of the beating that, that one takes just riding over them. Um, yeah, it was really just kind of letting him go, go yeah, at it. Teeth, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the one thing that's come up a lot is, you know, well, you know, what if you crashed on it again? Um, it's, it's an understandable question, but it's kind of a false premise because the stable itself is fracture. I mean, I'm sorry, the fracture itself <laughs> is stable. Right. Um, yeah, you know what I mean? And you know, if, so just, just an impact to it isn't necessarily going to cause a problem. An impact big enough to, you know, displace it or crack it further is probably going to crack a healthy scapula too. Like, right. So so the point is, you know, it's to think about what might happen if he fell kind of assumes that nothing would happen if he was healthy and fell. Um, and anything that's going to be a big enough impact to hurt him in his current state is going to be a big enough impact to hurt him, you know, totally healthy. So we can't really proceed that way. Right,
0: right. Was it? I'm just curious from a personal perspective, was it, you know, when you spoke to him after the stage or whatever, was it really difficult for him to get through it, Uh, just pain, like pain management-wise, other than the stage itself, what it it requires, but for for him in particular?
1: Uh, It was a tough one, but it's one of those where – I mean, honestly, that's a better question for him, and I, I don't—I don't want to put words in his okay. mouth. But what—but what I would say is that, it—it it was one of those things where, you know, it was painful, and it was kind of a question of well, you know, was it going to be this painful anyway, or was this was this Roubaix, or was this the shoulder? Um, and I think, honestly, that it was, you know, a little bit of both. But I—I I think, and maybe he would tell me I'm wrong, but. I, I think that he handled it from a pain standpoint better than he thought he would. In other words, I think it was, I think he was kind of, you know, ready for this big insult and it turned out not to be as bad as he thought. Not that it wasn't bad, but that, you know, it kind of uh, finished and it's like, oh, well, Bouvet always sucked and that sucked. Right, right, exactly. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and I think that's a good point because I I think Ryder, in his position, um, you do kind of get into a rhythm, and you know I think if you can find that rhythm, uh, after a few days, you know a lot of people have talked about his crash and you know he fractured his scapula, and and I I would imagine that the first five days were 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 much tougher than probably the last five days. You, you just. You just find yeah. a rhythm and you get through it. I guess my question, and this came up on a on another podcast with a with a much more famous person than than me, but uh, there was a lot of this talk about pain management and how the riders are so limited now and and what they can do with pain management. Um, but the fact is, is that the really quote unquote good pain management really dulls the senses. Uh, what is your I, I, I guess you're feeling or, or or what do you guys use in order to come up with good pain management? What was Lawson using for pain management uh you know particularly on the
1: bike to get through the stage yeah we, we I actually got that question a lot during the first week um, and the the answer is Tylenol and ibuprofen um and that is for a few reasons one um I guess first and foremost, it's effective. You know, the combination of the two, we know from, from recent studies in the pain medicine literature is that combination is as effective as some of the lower level opiates, um, you know, tramadol or hydrocodone, Interesting. uh, but it doesn't have that, that intoxicating effect. So you don't, you're not, your senses aren't dulled. You don't reaction time isn't slowed um so it's first and foremost it's just a good choice um secondly though it is also what we're limited to by the rules um the there's a medication called tramadol that um we have agreed for years not to use within our team um and there's a number of teams that have kind of entered this agreement too because it's a medication that's probably overused in psych. Um, so so for us you know my take on it is if if you can't if tylenol and ibuprofen aren't sufficient to control your pain then you don't need to be riding like that that's a good indication that it's time just to you know sit it down for a while and recover um you know there definitely in cycling has been a history of using tramadol and codeine and hydrocodone um you know and and some of these things remain legal in the sport, but I personally think they don't have any place in competition uh, because it just – you don't want to be riding shoulder to shoulder across the cobbles with – in a peloton with a guy who has you know a couple doses of hydrocodone in his system. Um, it's just a danger to everyone around as far as I'm concerned.
2: Yeah, that's a uh, great point. I take – On occasion tram it all, so i'm familiar with it and that's actually what i was prescribed for that dislocation it doesn't make me feel good for sure but but that is not something that i want to be taking when i'm racing um it kind of circles us back around to that original point about the rider health is like look at if you if you've got to take so much pain medication uh to keep you in the race then then that's probably a pretty good sign that you shouldn't be racing
1: yeah for sure
0: right I'm curious, though, as far as Tramadol or any of the other stronger medications go as far as um, obviously not using them during the race or, you know, during the daytime. Um, would any riders, would him in particular or any riders necessarily use them at night to help them sleep if they're in a great deal of pain? Is that legal? Is that uh, something that, that might be, you know, uh, used? Or you sure. know, lack of sleep an issue, obviously, in the tour? I'm guessing lack of sleep would be a huge problem because you wouldn't recover properly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is, it's legal to do, um, from an anti-doping standpoint. Um, like I said, we've agreed within a group called the MPCC not to do that in competition. And in competition is defined as, um, you know, basically from a few days before the race starts until it's finished. Um, so for us, you know, it's kind of a gentleman's agreement that we have said we won't do that. Um, I kind of put it into the same category as, you know, if, if it hurts that bad after a, after a stage that you, you can't sleep, which is kind of the, the normally the the Tylenol and ibuprofen, um, just kind of what I'd refer to as normal treatment, um, and, again, you probably need to be home recovering because you're, even though if you're able to get through the stage, you're probably doing a bit too much. I, I tell most of my athletes, um, professional or otherwise, that there's um, kind of three rules for continuing with an injury. And I've blatantly stolen these in bits and pieces from other doctors along the way, so I can't take credit for them. But it's a great framework it is, you know, one, if, it, if you're getting a lot of sharp pain during the activity – then you need to stop. And there's a difference between discomfort and pain, and we can go into that. But you know, if it's if it's sharply painful while you're while you're running, biking, whatever, then you need to stop. If it's significantly painful afterwards, um, you know, if the next day it's such that it it is so painful that it kind of changes how you move through your day, then you did too much, and what you did, you need to you need to back down. And if you are altering your mechanics in any way um to accommodate the pain then you need to stop. So like with a with a runner they may say, "Well, you know, my my knee really hurts, but if I change my stride like this, if I if I shorten my stride or if I can kind of kick my knee out, my heel out a little bit and it doesn't hurt. Well, that's ridiculous. Don't you know, right. <laughs> don't change what you do." So, you know, by by that by those rules if we get to the evening and somebody is in so much pain that they can't get through the night, can't sleep without kind of standard treatment, then the fact that they completed the day before was probably too much. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. totally, yeah,
2: yeah. Okay. I think you've kind of touched on this, on a lot of this, but from the, the general cycling public, you know, bike racer, doesn't matter, cat one, cat two, cat five. What do you think are some of the things that we should be doing uh, on an everyday basis or a weekly basis that would make us better? And, and just, just simple things or, you know, complex things. What, what is it that you think that riders are missing that would just make them a better overall cyclist?
1: You, you said cat 5 with such disdain. What was that?
2: No. I, like those, hey, those, I was those, never a cat 5 because I started racing before there were cat 5s. So.
1: All right. Um, well, that's the golden period where you can get better by just like doing anything. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, that's I think cat 5 is awesome. Um, yeah. No, you know, I think I think the the number one thing for those of us who are not making a paycheck at this, regardless of how serious you are, is consistency with a plan, um, both in training and recovery, and so what you see is that oftentimes people have a great plan, but they don't stick to the training. They cut it short by thirty minutes here or there. They don't do their intervals hard enough, um, and then they don't do their easy ride to easy enough, and so they're not really they've got a plan, but they just kind of halfway stick to it. So. Consistency in sticking to that plan, not just having three or four good days and then three or four that kind of fall by the wayside, but really sticking to it is key. But so important with that and, and in any good plan is appropriate recovery and having a having some responsiveness of the plan to the athlete and their recovery. So if you're you know, if, if you're not prioritizing sleep, if you're not tracking your day-to-day recovery in some way, then you really don't know whether it's appropriate to go out and do that day's training prescription, even though it may have been prescribed by your coach or yourself two or three weeks ago. And so I think, I think where a lot of, a lot of non-professional athletes, and maybe professionals too, but definitely those of us that are you know, cycling enthusiasts, where they really miss the boat is taking their overall life into account and recognizing, okay, today I may train an hour and a half or four hours, um, but there's 20 plus hours remaining in the day that impact how I improve or don't improve. And if I don't take those into account, and the stress at work, the lack of sleep, the you know running around to, to family sporting events, um, it, you can be shooting yourself in the foot to just kind of plow through a workout. Um, so, so for me, it's really a matter of, of having some sort of measurement of recovery and being willing to alter your training plan based on it. Interesting. I was
0: curious actually, I mean, I don't know if this is pro- probably been in the media, but I didn't quite see it anywhere. what what actually did happen to, to Rigo? And obviously I know he crashed, but I didn't quite see the details of his of his
1: uh, injuries yeah he's he's uh not broken anything, um, but he went down hard twice on the cobbles and hurt his left elbow and left knee, and ultimately he just his left knee was too painful to. Continue. I mean, he he could hang on, but he couldn't couldn't really accelerate, couldn't keep in the race. Um, and it was just, I mean, quite honestly, it was it was understandably too painful to, to keep pushing on. So um, so he pulled out. But yeah, he had he had a lot of bruising and swelling and abrasions to those two joints, and was kind of beat up just up and down his left side from a couple. Uh, from a couple crashes so it was unfortunate but um that's that's bike racing yeah yeah
2: well great hey kevin i appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and yeah i, I definitely wish you luck
1: yeah yeah we definitely really really appreciate it well no thanks for having me on it was it was a pleasure talking to you guys
2: That wraps up another One More Mile podcast. Again, I want to thank Dr. Kevin Sprouse for taking the time to talk with us, as well as Don Reagan for helping to set up this interview. For those of you in Knoxville, Don is a superb physical therapist, one of the best that I've ever met. Uh, He kept me going for about three years when I was out at Ferrum College, and he was definitely worth the hour-long drive. I also want to thank Rudy Project for their support of this show and, of course, you, the listener. But I've got one more favor to ask you. We need your support to grow and develop this podcast. If you love this show and you want to hear more great content, write us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast portal. Take a snapshot and email it to us at mile at gmail.com with the subject heading Rudy Rocks. Again, that's goonemoremile at gmail.com. All entries must be received by August 12th, 2018, to be entered to win. You can also head on over to our website, www.go1mm.com. That's go1mm.com. You can donate to the show directly there. Remember, folks, success comes to those willing to go one more mile. Later.